Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. All power to the people. All power to the people. This is the People's Black Panther Party for self-determination, and you're listening to us today in reference to the creation, the evolution, and extermination of the Negro. Our national chairman is Yang Nkrumah, National Director of Operations, Sister Seven Khadijah. I'm the National Chief of Staff, Brother War. And we have the Panther 48, which is Brother E and Brother Sight, like always. Any guests that uh, want to call in and join into the discussion, Dallas, you can reach us by 323-870-4191 and just press 1 to be placed into the queue. And at that point, when uh, the time is right, we will add you into the discussion. Again, today's show dealing with the creation, evolution, and extinction, extermination of the Negro. We want to address this and start this off kind of like what we usually do when we go into the definitions and the language of situation to make sure that we have a, a playing field that everyone can relate to. But as I do that, I just simply want to actually drop the words, and then what we'll do is cover back on them as we go out, go throughout the show. One of the words I want us to keep in mind is, is the word creation, because anything that's created has to have an ending. Remember that. So when we think about the Negro, or we think whether we're talking about psychologically, socially, or physically, whatever. If there was a creation, there has to be an extinction. Another word we want to talk about, a concept we want to get into when we go into the definitions and we further go into our discussion, is channel enslavement conditioning. Because what we will be doing is going into that aspect and addressing that as well. The other one would be hurting. Because what we have to accept and recognize about the enslavement is it applies across the board to the way one species would treat another species, especially as it applies to identifying them as not being considered a human being for the sake of being able to justify their actions. So herding comes into that position. Additional word I want us to keep in mind is separation. And what do we mean when we talk talk about separation as it applies to the Negro? The last one being extermination. So with that being said, and those words thrown out there, let me turn it over to Brother E to guide us in the first section of the uh, discussion here, creation. Hey, Brother E. Excuse me. Uh, evening, family. Um. So I want to uh, start off uh, in the spirit of um, providing some of those definitions. Um, another way to provide definitions for everyone to uh, be working on the same page, so to speak, uh, knowing that we're coming from uh, the same place, is to kind of define us and our situation as it was at a particular point in time. Um, 
And in order to really understand, understand where we are, you kind of got to first get at least a cursory, just basic understanding of where we were. Um, so I want to reflect on a few things from, from our history, what was going on um, in general, a few places on the continent, up to a few years before the uh, the Maafa. Maafa is a Swahili word that means essentially the great disaster, kind of what we refer to the European, uh, what they call the African slave trade. Uh, number one, it wasn't African. It was a European uh, event, um, and it wasn't a trade because trade is a legitimate uh, a form of, of a, form, a legitimate activity between people within a society. Um, so kind of reframing it, taking an Afrocentric uh, approach and positioning it and looking at it from our perspective, this was not a trade. This was a great disaster. And so that's kind of where we want to put our minds when we deal with it, when we look at it. Um, again, get, giving it credence and, and basically saying it was, it was legit. It was all right in some sense by calling it a trade and then uh, assigning it to us as if it was something that we instituted or tried or attempted. Um, and along those lines, to kind of differentiate between, you know, one of the things that naysayers and, and other folks, people who want to argue the point, like to say is, well, slavery has always existed. There was slavery in Africa. Africa Africans were selling each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, the reality of it is so-called slavery prior to the U.S. was nothing like slavery in the U.S. Um, it is true that a form of, quote-unquote, slavery, which is actually more accurately called uh, a servitude, a type of indentured servitude, has existed throughout history. But if we're going to define slavery as what happened to us in this country or what happened to us beginning in Africa, with the European, with the advent of European and the Arab, uh, then we have to make a differentiation. If that's going to be the definition of slavery, then anything that existed like that prior to that, we can't really call the same thing. Um, so just to highlight some of the ways, well, what it is I'm saying with that is um, prior to this European form of slavery, slavery was applied to individuals not to families. It wasn't generational. In other words, you might be enslaved, but your children weren't. Your wife or husband wasn't. Your, 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 your uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters weren't uh, enslaved just because you were enslaved. Prior to this European event, the, those that were enslaved could, could, in some form or fashion, uh, either earn or purchase their freedom. They were allowed to, to miscegenate into the society uh, or back into their own society. It wasn't for a lifetime. Uh, it was essentially most times, well, all times, uh, it was a result of having committed a crime, uh, incurring a debt, or being captured in war. None of these were true with this American form of slavery. American, this slavery in, in America, is what European imposed on us was generational, if you were a slave, your children were slaves, or you were enslaved, your children were enslaved. It wasn't for committing a crime or any type of indebt that you incurred. It was just because 
you fit the description. And I know we can all identify with that. Um, and though at certain times African people were able to purchase their or their loved ones' uh, freedom, so to speak, Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, though there were those individuals who have noted to have been able to purchase uh, their their freedom or their, the freedom of their loved ones, the, uh, uh, the general rule, especially uh, in the Confederacy, in an attempt to better control this, 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 uh, this event, this enslavement of Africans, actually made it uh, pass laws that made it so that only a slave owner could purchase slaves. It was not a situation where anybody could purchase it. Therefore, if you were an African, more than likely, for the most part, you didn't own anybody, so therefore you couldn't purchase anybody. So again, these are just some of the ways that we differentiate between the so-called slavery that existed in the rest of the world and what the European imposed upon us. It was an extremely different and horrendously brutal, which hopefully we'll see in some of the, uh, the examples as we go forward, uh, uh, emphatically brutal uh, uh, form of, of enslavement. Now, life in Africa wasn't a bed of roses all the time, but the reality of it is African people being in charge of African destinies did some pretty, pretty, pretty impressive things. Now, if we go back uh, by the year uh, 5000 B.C., by, 5, 000, by about 5,000 B.C., uh, agriculturalists in, in Egypt had developed irrigation and animal husbandry, basically, you know, breeding animals and farming. Um, by raising the, 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 the food supply, they were able to increase the, their population, thereby adding to the things that they were able to do, such as, you know, uh, glass making, metallurgy, weaving, woodworking, um, um, leather-making, masonry, uh, uh, things that are the, the foundation of any uh, real uh, uh, developing society. And we know where the masonry led to. It led to one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the, the, the pyramids, the pyramid complexes. And those get thrown out there a lot of times as examples, and it's like, yeah, they're cool, but so what? And essentially we'll step back and just kind of blow it off as, yeah, that was all right because we don't really understand exactly how, for lack of a better word, how dope the pyramids are. You know, you had, there are folks that try to say that, that the, the, the pyramids were built by slaves, but we can easily get rid of that notion. The, the masonry work that still exists in the pyramid was so far advanced that there's no way that a slave, anybody who was enslaved, could have ever achieved such precision, such exactness. The blocks that are put together in the pyramid, they make up the pyramid. There is no cement in between them. They are just blocks, several tons, you know, five, ten ton blocks put in place, heavy, extremely heavy blocks put in place with such accuracy up against each other that you can't slide a piece of paper in between them. The Great Pyramid, the Pyramid of Khufu, or what they call Cheops, sits at the geographic center of the earth and is, and is aligned with true north. There's a shaft that goes up from the, from the center of the pyramid 
that aligns with uh, the, the star Sirius. That it shines down that 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 shaft and shines light for only a moment every year. So this is the exactness that we were doing these things tens of thousand years before the so-called uh, the, the the Ma'afa, before the so-called slave trade. We were doing that before they knew what math was. There was a cat named Imhotep. Imhotep was a little black man, three, four, maybe five feet tall. He was he was he was such he had many trades. One of them was that of a physician, and he was worshipped as a god of medicine in Greece. Worshipped as a god. Now remember, the Greeks are the people. Greeks are the ones that Europeans hold up and say this is the the zenith, the pinnacle of our civilization. This is the greatest that we can do. And then you look, who did the Greeks look up to? Us. Little old black man worshipped as a freaking god of medicine. When uh, 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 doctors take the, the uh, Hippocratic Oath, there's a man name mentioned in there, and that man is Imhotep. So all of these doctors are taking an oath to Imhotep. If we've ever studied any, uh, geometry to any degree or even uh, algebra, uh, the basics, you come across the Pythagorean theorem. Well, that Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, was developed and realized by Africans, by Imhotep and others who worked. You can't build a pyramid without knowing the basics, and that formula is one of the basics. So again, as a mathematician and a physician and an architect and a poet, uh, the phrase eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is attributed to Imhotep. And again, this is several thousand years before these fools kidnapped us and took us away into this nonsense. In the 1300s, there was a man named Mansa Musa. This dude was worth, by today's money, this dude was worth a good $400 billion. Jeff Bezos, the head of uh, Amazon, right now today, and, and, and I hesitate to say only, but he's only worth, depending on the, the market and the day, 150 to $200 billion. So even back then we had them. This, these people had so much money that when he made a pilgrimage to Mecca, he spent so much money in the countries in between that he uh, uh, disrupted economies so much that he sent them into bankruptcy. That's how much money this cat had. He was just spreading the wealth around. So these are some of the things that we were involved in that we were doing prior to all of this. We weren't just running around with bones in our noses, booga booga, and all of that nonsense. We were creating the idea of masonry, the idea of 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 of, of literature, the idea of, of civilization, infrastructure, even warfare, all of these things. And then came our interaction with the Arab and the European. So to kind of get into some of the things that went on with the advent of the Ma'afa, you know, one of the reasons we don't want to, we've heard the phrase middle passage. When we call it the middle passage, we're really looking at it from the Europeans' point of view because it's called the middle passage because the beginning of the passage was on the continent when they rounded us up and, and put us in the, the, the holding cells at, at Gory Island and, and some of the other uh, forts along the west coast of Africa. So when we, when we say the middle, 
We're referencing that that's the beginning, and then landing here in the U.S. was the end. From the Europeans' perspective, that's true. But from our perspective, it's not true because it's still going on. You can't have a middle until it's ended. So once we get to the end point and move on to another time, we can look back and say, yeah, that was the middle passage. But at this point in time, we can't say that because it's just not so. Moving forward and into some of the, the particulars, and I'm not going to get too far into them. I want to leave some mystery to, to maybe catch folks' attention and then, you know, don't want to freak people out too, too much. But these are the things we have to be aware of. These are the things that make us say, oh, when I think about that, it makes me mad. Yes, it needs to make you mad. It needs to make you angry and frustrated. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is either acting on it and lashing out, rioting, looting, that sort of nonsense, or suppressing it. And you press down those emotions like any other emotion, it's going to come out in some way. So if we harness that energy, get mad, get pissed off and angry about it, but use that energy to be productive so that we can make this the, make this the middle passage, find a way to make it the middle by coming to the end. According to Malefi Asante, there is no history of slave economies in Africa. And what I'm saying is, yes, it existed. As we mentioned earlier, there was slavery all over the world. But there's never been in Africa a recorded economy where the entire economy was based on the enslavement of human beings. It did not exist until Europeans came up with that idea. So I'm going to kind of go through a few of these events that took place as a quickening, as a, a part of the process of breaking us down, because that was really step one was to begin to break that spirit. Because believe it or not, we fought back, and we'll talk about that hopefully another time. But to break that spirit and get the, you know, the, the, the idea is that a wild horse is of no use to me, if I'm trying to get work out of it, I have to tame it. I have to bring it under control. And so some of these things, these things were some of the things that they did in order to try to, try to reach that, uh, that goal of breaking our spirit. So the first one I want to mention is head shaving. All of us would agree. All of us know. You can't touch a black woman's hair. This is the way it is. There is a cultural significance of hair in our community. We put a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of energy into making our hair look just right. And it's not just because we like to look good. And I'm gonna let Brother War break down some, some of the some of the more particulars of that. But the reality of it is these European <clears throat> these Europeans knew and understood to a degree that hair was extremely significant as an expression as a cultural tie, as an even a, a, a religious or spiritual uh, a reality for African people. So one of the first things they did was to shave off the hair. You know, you've heard of skinheads. Well, we were the first skinheads. Before they were running around uh, uh, shaving their heads, talking about Zeke Heil and all of that, we were skinheads when they put us on the boat because they shaved our heads down to the skin to detach us from that, 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 that cultural reality. So we, 
could lessen uh, our identity with those around. We a lot of times would identify one another. You know, I know where you're from because of the way that you wear your hair. I know that you're in the uh, uh, courting process because of the way that you have your hair. There's some pictures, if you've ever Googled that type of thing, uh, hairstyles from ancient Africa or even Africa period, you see brothers on there with some pimped out dudes. I mean, just to be honest with you, some just really, really nice hairstyles. And it wasn't just about looking good. There was a cultural significance to it. So I'm going to ask Syke to jump in because I know he and I, when we first started establishing our relationship, something that was kind of foreign to me was the concept, was the idea of of hair being that important. So we kind of bumped heads or somebody in our cipher bumped heads about the idea because it kind of, I remember one time when it kind of rubbed Syke the wrong way when there was an issue, somebody touched his hair or there was something. I forget the particulars, but it was a significance. So, Psych, if you could kind of touch on how that idea of hair, back as we've established back then, and especially now today, the significance of it from your experience in the community and how that idea applies. Well, <clears throat> peace, peace. You know, uh, Back then, I was first coming into consciousness, so I wasn't aware of the symbolism or the significance of her at the time. I wasn't aware of it, just something that was part of that subculture of growing up in the black community that you understood about her. And as you just said, you've seen some brothers with some pimped out hers. In those times, I'm bald-headed now, but in those times, I had, uh, I had always developed a long her style that was an expression of, of, of something a little bit deeper. Now I know the symbolism. Now I know what it, what it symbolically represented and, and what that her represents and what it means to many people all over the planet, actually. You know, when we hear the story of Samson in the Bible, and one of the things that, that, that was told to Samson's mother was to never cut his hair. And Samson had seven locks on his hair. Symbolically, what that represented, what that meant uh, uh, was that since seven in that ancient time represented the number of God, and the head is the highest point on a human on a human being, and the head is the only part of the body that can operate from all five senses. It's the only part of you that you can utilize every sense that you have and conceptualize the information that you have got from your senses and create a framework to think from. The head and that crown on the head becomes extremely important. So for Samson. What that, what that seven locks of her represented was that Samson had the knowledge of God. Cutting out of her only meant to remove the knowledge of God or the acknowledgement and the power of God from Samson. And when that happened symbolically, Samson lost his quote-unquote power, his quote-unquote strength. And that's the, the, the same symbolism, even when we're not aware of it, that we're operating from, that that, that, that strength somehow represents, that her somehow represents my strength or my power, or my or my level of knowledge, it becomes the crown. You know, when you go to prison, one of the first things they do is cut your hair. They used to keep your face shaven, uh, uh, but now because of religious reasons, they have to let people grow beards now, and they hate that because they put all kind of uh, restrictions even on that. But the reason why they cut you bald face and bald head was basically to turn you into a baby, to make you smooth 
like a child, like a baby first coming out of the womb so that she no longer look like a man. But uh, that's, all I, that's all I want to say on that. I appreciate it, bro. Um, yeah. War. War, could you yes. uh, um, kind of bridge the two, the past, and, and what psych has, has kind of run down? Um, and also, I know that you were in the military, and, and I, I, I never was, but I am aware that they also shave heads in that situation as well. So could you kind of speak to that as well as maybe some of the metaphysical or the, the symbolism and just kind of tie the two together? Um, and, and kind of make it make sense for us in, in, in an applicant application sort of way. Okay. I first start off by the concept, whether it be military, uh, prison industrial complex, or any scenario as it applies to the removal. The deal is, is we're removing the hair, and it has a lot to do with the fact that we're talking about the, the part of the human body which expresses the most points of of expression, which is which is the head. From that standpoint, when the hair is shaving, basically it is the removal or the fresh or a new beginning. Creating a new beginning from that standpoint is is basically stepping to the table with a with a clean slate or a new slate, which means you are now a blank canvas. And from that standpoint, whatever I bring into you or whatever I, I, I provide into that direct connection of that brain is a new beginning, is a, is a new process, a transformation. So this even goes into why um, subconsciously and naturally dealing with women in general, especially our black women, when they come into a, a crisis situation or they want to escape a bad part of their past, what they tend to naturally want to do is cut their hair. They naturally want to cut their hair. Going into what Psyche even talked about, about um, the, when it's our subconscious talking to us, when we don't want to let someone touch our hair. See, a lot of times we don't even know where that comes from. We, we, we just, it's just something naturally we don't want a person to do. And it don't have nothing to do with what's, what's in our hair, like some type of conditioner or, or hairspray or nothing. It's just the fact that that energy that comes off the head, through your hair, through the, through, through the cranium, through your skull, is not to be in, interfered with. So we have this natural defense of wanting, wanting to protect the, the source of our, our existence or our connection to the all. So from that standpoint, from front to back, the face gives indication of power. And the hair role in that indication provides, again, experience, lineage, and strength. So when you deal with different African uh, customs, tribes, and it's just, I would just say, honestly, humanity, period, but it's mostly expressed in Africans because of our, uh, uh, the kinkiness of our hair. As a result of that, basically, knowing what, you can, what, what uh, science brings you, and me being a student of, uh, of electronics and radio communications, we know that antennas operate off curls. A lot of antennas themselves are spiral shaped. Those spiral shapes mimic the same example and same perspective of the African hair structure, the texture of an African hair. These antenna um, structures basically create a connection and a reception between other Africans and other, uh, other, other Africans in, in, in within your tribe or within, within your environment. And it 
talks directly through the through that experience and going through the lineage and the strength, the hair follicle itself helps to create a connection between all all beings. And when it creates that connection, it opens up again through natural con- conduction. It opens up the pathways to certain aspects of greatness. So what happens is, and, and, and what happens over, especially over genetically over time, what you do when you remove that hair follicle, and we're talking about generations now, when things go from the standpoint of, being, of having purpose to now only being an art, so to speak, which is to be admired versus to have practicality. Because we got to understand, let's look at this from a, a, a warfare perspective. Our hair has been reduced from being the connection we have with each other to just a way of expressing um, how, how we want to look or how we want to present ourselves to the world. Whereas going back on the continent and going back into uh, deep aspects of spirituality, of African spirituality, it was literally our connection to the world. It was not simply an artistic expression. And that's the problem we have, period, with the, the loss of our power and the loss of what we are and who we are in regards to our identity. Our hair played a significant role in that connection, in our ability subconsciously to connect with one another and communicate through one another. This is also why the expression of the talking drum played such a strong role in African heritage. And give you another example as it applies to that, when you – when your body goes into the fight or flight um, perspective, a, a point of view, a fight or flight mode, there's a, a certain chemical that operates that flushes out throughout through your body and causes what your hair to rise, so to speak. And that's a natural condition within all life forms. And then, why would your hair rise? Because what ha- what is happening is those receptors are now in a mode to where they're able to connect and they listen in and they, and they take in the entire environment. By taking in the environment now, everything is more out to be able to represent or more out to be able to sustain and, and connect to everything else that's going on. So you create this heightened sense of awareness. Our hair follicles play that same role within our mind and our ability to be able to project vision, imagery, and connection and building and developing. But we have lost, again, through that connection and, 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 and lack of, of subconscious understanding what the hair represents. And a lot, of, a lot of development, just like Brother E was talking about with the pyramid and going into the, the, the physics and, and, and the astrophysics of that, and that's another thing, a whole different discussion altogether, but the pyramid itself represented basically all aspects of calculus and geometry and algebra combined into one. The Europeans that knew what was going on and was able to obtain and recognize this by reverse engineering was, you know, uh, uh, basically dumbfounded by the, the amount of experience that goes into that and amount of architect design and, and processing that the Africans were able to come up with. Our hair bridges that same type of connection. But part of what we're discovering and discussing today has to do with the the erasing of that. So when you talk about the hair from that standpoint, 
we have to recognize the significance that our hair played. When we talk about the lock or the dreadlock, what that goes back to doing is the recognition, even from the standpoint of realizing the culture, the recognition of, of unifying and bringing our people back together. That's what you're doing when you're locking. And our hair has a tendency to naturally lock into a pattern, into an antenna form that allows it a deeper the world. And what we have to recognize with that is as a species on this planet, that connection will naturally allow us to operate within an environment that brings us in balance with the rest of the world. And this is why it goes back to how the Africans live their life in terms of being at one with nature. Your hair plays a significant role in that. But because, again, now that it's been reduced to just an art form or a way of expressing how I want to look versus my experiences, my lineage, and my strength, and my culture, then we have lost that connection with the all. We have lost that connection. We're living out of balance with nature. So that is just a minor aspect of the significant role Harris played has played with us as a people prior to the middle, quote-unquote, middle passage. And as the shaving of the hair is a, base, a, a basis of, of conquering, uh, or whether it be conquering or erasing the past or creating a clean, blank slate so that something new can be put in, in place. Now, when we say something new, that doesn't autom- automatically mean better. It's just basically, again, erasing the past. One of the concepts that you deal with within warfare has to do with rewriting history, rewriting culture, and rewriting lifestyle. So if I, if I want to take, a, uh, take a, a product and give it my spin, my direction, whether it be for the better or for worse, then what you do is you do what? You start with a, what was referred to as a clean slate. And let's not get this twisted. Going into the now time where a lot of people are coming into recognition of certain forms of systematic racism, this is, what we, this is where we go back to the whiteboard or the canvas from that standpoint. So why is the whiteboard white? Why do we draw with, with, with black? So, so the, same, the same concept goes into that. So when we want to blank out an image, the first thing that pops into our mind because of our subconscious um, uh, beating down on racism is a whiteboard. So keep that in mind. So when you shave that head, they got us believing or they got us convinced that we're going back to a, 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 a great whiteness or a great blank canvas, so to speak, which in their mind from that standpoint, as long as they're the ones able to pour in and supply the new direction, then that element of control overrides everything else. So from there, E, go ahead and take over. Okay, so so essentially to wrap up what you said, uh, uh, what you're telling me is that through our hair, at one point in our history, the significance or a great, great significance, a significance, is the fact that our hair and the styles that we wore them in allowed us not only to physically identify with one another, but also to communicate with one another in a telepathic sort of manner. Not only one another, but nature and the singularity uh, uh, itself. And so by shaving it, they essentially cut off 
our ability to connect with or an ability for us to connect with one another and nature and God, or at least impeded and separated us on that level from one another. Correct. That's all right. Let me move on to to, to another one. Um, that kind of feeds into the separating of, of the like kind. You know, you had Africans from various parts of the continent. You know, you had folks that were Yoruba, folks that were Mendi, folks that were Ashanti, folks that um, came from various different uh, backgrounds, different nations, different uh, uh, tribes, uh, peoples. Um, so you take all of these different folks and you place them into a, a situation where they're up against each other, packed tightly, not able to find uh, a Mendy person, a person from the Yorba, not able to find somebody else who was Yorba and communicate. You essentially had total strangers, folks with no, no physical uh, connection with one another. They weren't able to identify. Um, and also mentioning the packing. On these slave ships, hmm. we, I don't think we, and this is where it gets into that whole slavery was bad or it's a part of where it gets into the whole slavery was bad. No, being packed in the bottoms of those slave ships, of those ships, the good ship Jesus was the name of one of them, to these ships that were ordained by the Pope and packed with African people who were said to not be human and so it was okay to go ahead and slave them, especially if you are uh, supposedly under the guise of attempting to, to uh, salvage their soul. You had uh, folks, particularly men on the lower levels, who were packed into to, to, to conditions and to uh, confined spaces that were essentially no bigger than a coffin, you know, chained next to a cat next to you that just died from dysentery or, 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 or some other uh, disease. And on your other side, you were chained to another cat who, though he's still alive, is you're having to lay there in his piss and his shit for eight weeks, two, three months at a time. The heat and the stench for eight weeks at a time. Imagine being locked up in the stankiest bathroom for just a day. Most of us wouldn't be able to, to, to manage that. Imagine laying on your back in the fecal matter, in the piss, for days on end, and not even just your own, but the cat next to you, and the other cat next to you that's not dead, but you're still chained to him. And this was just the brothers. Sisters arguably at it worse because they were up on the top decks, and they were the main entertainment for the white boys up on the top decks because they were raped daily. No respect given. Many of them arrived in the, in the so-called new land, pregnant with the children, of these white dudes that raped them. Can you imagine the mind fuck? What goes on to a person's psychology, the psyche, how messed up that makes their, the, the sister's whole perception, and not even just hers, but her child. You know, the first bastard children that we had in this country were the children of the oppressor. No diss to the children, but it's just a reality that these cats truly never knew their fathers. So is it any wonder that we have that issue now when it was common when we first hit this ground? Not common before we left, but common when we got here because of this slave trade, this African slave trade. Many of us were sick and would die, as I said, and in order 
from a European perspective, it makes sense. If I have cattle and one one of my cows is sick and it's dying, rather than let that cow spread that sickness to all my other cows, I'm going to toss them overboard. And that's the way they treated us. We got sick. I'm not going to let you affect the rest of my money. I'm going to go ahead and jettison. I'm going to pop you and, and I'm going to chunk, pop you over the, overside, over the overboard, throw you in the ocean. So be it. And us jumping overboard is, is another conversation. But to the point of resistance, again, we were resisting, and there were some who did do that. So, so again, these are there's something like that you said to me years and years ago that I kind of want you to speak to, but under the guise of exercise, but in reality, as entertainment on an eight-week trip on this cruise ship for white boys, some of the entertainment, aside from the sex from the sisters or the, the sex violence, that they imposed on the, the African women, on your grandmother, great-great-great-great-grandmother. There was also what you told me years ago, show a monkey something shiny, and they'll dance for you. So the whole something shiny aspect, but the, the singing and dancing that supposedly was for exercise, but in reality was entertainment for them. I know that you've worked in the music industry. You've dealt with folks in the music industry. So I'm hoping you could pull a little bit and maybe talk a little bit about what you've seen, whether it's in the interaction of, of the, 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 the officials, the business side of it, and how the, 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 um, the singing and dancing is for their benefit as opposed to ours, or the actual music itself, how music that uplifts doesn't really get radio play. But if you're talking about shooting niggas and, and clocking bitches, then, you know, you get all the play that you want. So just something along those lines to kind of, kind of highlight our experience with entertainment as we knew it arriving in this new world. Well, you know, that might've been a better question for war because he's the one brought me into music and he was the producer, but I will speak on it from this point of view, but I'm going to detour just a little bit because I'm going to go back to your original thing on her for a second, for a few minutes, not a second. Uh, <laughs> one, <laughs> back in 2001, one, before I took my hiatus, one of the last uh, lessons I heard you give was on her. I don't know if you remember this. When we was, uh, when the headquarters was in Oak Cliff in Dallas, and uh, you gave a lesson on her, and I brought my cousin to the to the uh, lesson. My cousin Tasha, and uh, she wasn't conscious, but she was she was searching. She was trying to learn. And I the first political education class she came to was you teaching on her. And you know, you threw a little ice cube in there. You uh, you essentially said that the original man and woman's her is the original her that was meant to be on the planet. That's why I can do everything. You said that it can braid up. You said that you can grow it long and, and let it uh, uh, lock up. You said you can let it nap up. You can let it flow up. You said that you can cut it off, go down, and you can cut it off and go down to the corner store and beat the jap up. That's what, that what you essentially said. And she had long hair. She had long hair at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you, what you was talking about on her was so influential to her. She had long hair. But she had her that looked like a European woman's hair because she had a perm on it. And she had long hair down down to like 
uh, the middle of her back, something like that. She had long hair. And, uh, but anyway, what she did. Okay, I think we actually lost the other site. Um, so until they get back on, I'll go ahead and continue here on um, Brother War. Uh, one of the, uh, an additional point I want to talk about in regards to the, the, the situation that we're dealing with with enslavement and dealing with the creation of the Negro is the fact that, well, how do we come into the idea of the Negro being what a Negro is? So dealing with the concept of Negro, why is the word Negro a significant word or come into a, a being right now? So from that standpoint, let's get in and let's recognize the fact that we do have a terminology here, the word Negro, the erasing of a culture, the erasing of a way of life. Um, so let's keep that in mind, too, as we move forward. There is a reason why the word Negro is part of the, the scope and part of the erasing of our heritage. Brother Sykes, you're back on, right? Yes, yes. You know, okay, uh, go we're going to put that on E. E's <laughs> responsible. E is the honorary Minister of Information in Meridius, and anything will go wrong when it comes to disseminating information, it's E's fault. I think that's always E's fault. Yeah. That's the green. That's right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, back to the point. So what she did the next day is uh, she went and cut all the hair off. She went and Erica Badu with her head. Right, right now, I don't know if you've seen Tasha in years. Right now, Tasha's hair is down to her knees. She has locked really? all wow. natural her hair all the way to her knees, to the point that you don't even you be like, man, that can't be real, but it's real. And and, and and I think one of the reasons why she's always had long hair, but it only went to the middle of her back. But when she went to her natural hairstyle, it went to her knees. You understand? Very nice. And, and uh, yeah, and and I think there's something to be said in that in that situation in that story itself, because this woman has her to her knees, and you know the perm and the the, the splitting of the split ends and things like that can keep your hair from growing. But when she embraced her natural self, her natural hairstyle, when she embraced what she was born with, that stuff never stopped growing. It went out, it went all the way down to her knees. But uh, uh, to talk about the entertainment industry a little well, bit. Let me let, let me jump in on you real quick, just to reiterate. Okay, moving on to another point, to to wrap that up and sum it up. What I can surmise from what you're saying, what I can distill from that then is that because she embraced an aspect of her real self, of her natural self, she saw this amazing amount of growth. True so indeed. The, so the degree to which, possibly, to to pull out of that, the degree to which. We, as a people, embrace our natural self. We can kind of gauge our overall growth. The more we embrace our natural self, the more we'll be able to grow. Would you agree? True indeed. True indeed. All right. No doubt. All right, go ahead. No doubt go ahead. But uh, <clears throat> to get a little bit into the entertainment industry, years ago I was reading a, uh, a smooth magazine, and uh, Ice Cube was on the cover. And, uh, you know, I grew up on Cube. He was one of my favorite rappers. Uh, and Cube is standing on top of the presidential podium with his fist in the air with the big afro. And so, you know, I know I had to read this. I know I had to read this issue. And so I read it, 
And, you know, they asked him about his movies. You know, Q made a lot of money and got a lot of fame in the uh, in the movie industry, especially with Friday, his classics. But, you know, he got everything he makes is pretty much comic- comical. And they asked him, they said, we go to Death Certificate or Predator and listen to that music, we would expect you to make some stuff like Spike. We would expect you some politically conscious uh, uh, movies, but you don't do that. All your stuff is funny. Why? And Q's response was this. Q's response was that the movie is my money maker. It's how I make my money. He said, and you got to understand that Hollywood does not believe us in serious roles. They don't want to see us like that. So they only believe us in the comedy roles. And so I would be shooting myself in the foot to go to trying to make conscious uh, uh, movies. It wouldn't go anywhere. So if they wanted to see that, I would make it. But they don't want to see that. And so, therefore, I make what sells. I make what, what uh, is able to keep my family fed and able to put money in the bank. And this is all the way across the board, even to the point of the, uh, the flag that the uh, Mario Van Peebles got when he was making passes. He and his father had to go into their own bank accounts pull the money out of their own bank account to fund the movie because no Hollywood studio would fund the movie. They had to go fund the movie themselves. And and I know we talked about music, but I'm talking about entertainment as a whole. We have to understand that those who are in control of media would never promote anything or any kind of uh, 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 entertainment, education, anything that's going to empower us mentally. No, they, they were not going to do that. They made a few mistakes back in the day. In the 60s, they made mistakes with people like Martin Luther King. They made mistakes with people like Malcolm X. They made mistakes with them because they thought, okay, this, this is uh, incendiary. This is, this is going to get a lot of views, and it's going to turn people off and make you know, people like Malcolm X, the Panthers. It's going to make them look crazy, and public opinion is going to go out against them. But like, uh, but like Bobby Seale said one time, he said that they – that they were going to promote us in this way. They were going to promote us in this way. Look at them crazy, excuse my language, look at them crazy niggas running around and all black with guns. But what they didn't understand, and, and this is quoting Bobby Seale, what they didn't understand is that Huey knew that they were going to do that. Huey told me, Bobby Seale said, that they were going to do that before we even marched that And Huey said what that is going to do is that is going to promote us to the average nigga in the street, the gangbanger the hustler, the dude that ain't afraid to pick up his gun and move through the streets because he's already running the streets with his gun. That's going to promote us. And they are going to say that those are some real bad niggas, the same way that I didn't had a few sisters tell me about the brothers that marched in Georgia, they're not, they're not effing around coalition. I had one sister told me, she said, those brothers look so strong. And you got to understand what, what those images create in the minds of men, women, and children. And when that sister told me that, it told me something about how black men have been looking so far. If the women in any society want to be able to look at their men and say, I know for a fact that we're not going to get handled. I know yep. for a fact he got it. You yep. know what I'm saying? And, and that's what I got from when that sister told me that. Those brothers in the NFAC gave those sisters that type of hope again. But anyway, yep. back to the entertainment. So no... Entertain, the entertainment industry, you have five major distribution uh, uh, companies in the music industry. Those five major distribution companies are Sony, uh, 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 Universal, Sony, Universal, EMI, 
uh, and I forget the other two. It might come to me, or I might remember them. But uh, it's five. I don't care who you listening to on any major level. If you listening to Britney Spears, some country uh, singer, I don't know any by name, a rock singer, or, or Jeezy, they being distributed by one of these five in some way, form, or fashion. That's what that's the type of control that they have over the music industry. And that would never be a six because they have so much power and control over the music industry. If you even come trying to make a six, they'll shut you out. Because as you can see, if you think about it, Sony doesn't only control the music department, but it also creates electronics. And it also makes movies. The same thing with Universal. So they have the power and the pool to shut you completely out if you try to step along their money. And it don't take a genius to understand what type of people own these five distribution companies. It doesn't take a genius. Now, you have some black people that own some regional distribution companies that are making money for these five, for one of these five in some way, form, or fashion. Example, uh, Jay Prince of Houston from Rapalot Records, he owns a portion of Asylum Distribution, which is a sudden distribution company. But that distribution company is under one of those five. So you can make, you can make your money as long as you're making me a whole lot more. And, and, don't, and don't get out of hand with it. Don't go to spitting that country stuff. It does a sister named uh, Neelam. There's a sister named, I don't know if you heard of the sister. Uh, uh, she, she raps. She bad. She, she nice on the mic. But she raps, and her whole thing, her videos, everything is Nation of Islam. That's her whole thing. And she got a song. I can't remember the name of the song, but she talks about it in the song, her, her, her conversation with the distribution company and how they told her, basically, you need to show a little leg. You need to put that conscious stuff to the side. We can make you big. She break it all the way down in her song. And if I remember the name of it, I would say it because it's a, it's a song to listen to, to that talks exactly about the point you're trying to make with this point right here. But she talks about this in the song. You, you see all the other women that made a successful interview, they were just like you at first. They came with this, oh, I want to make a point, but we showed them how to create this image. And now they're making their money. they got the fans. So that's what you need to do. Don't get out of hand with it. That's basically what she's saying in the song. And uh, I'm going to pass it to War and see what War has to build on this subject. Okay, so let me kind of double back a little bit on that. And I just want to talk about the aspect uh, from the music industry, the aspect of why things are the way they are. Again, going into the economics, but... Well, even taking out the economics, because the thing about the economics as it applies to music actually only goes applies to the actual science of sound. That's what we have to we have to understand the science of sound in itself, as it applies to rhythmic percussions and rhythmic uh, sound uh, rhythmic arrangements, creates a natural um, a, a natural response in the human in the human body. A natural response to where you you find it appealing, you find it attractive, and it sucks you and draws you in. This, as it applies to warfare, is referred to as the carrier. It becomes the carrier wave. In other words, it's what grabs your interest. It's what causes you to want to move around, shake, dance, whatever you want to call it. It it draws you in. That's the carrier. Now, knowing this, the music industry or the film film motion picture picture industry, which is really the ones that conglomerates that, that take hold of all this is motion picture. Uh, from that standpoint, once I have that carrier signal to the point to where it has drawn you in, the words, 
being the data, the information that's going to pour into your subconscious mind is the message that I want to uh, use to control the population. With that being said, the hip-hop industry per se, as well, primarily the hip-hop industry for this modern-day situation, it was recognized that the idea is to make sure that you continue to put a, a, a group of people asleep. So even going back to day one in terms of marketing it and making it something of, of an economic situation, we have to realize that the intent was to break it. Just like what we're talking about with the with the, the, the African period, the idea was to break the actual connection that hip hop had. Hip hop was developed in KRS One. I would I urge everyone on the, on the, on the lines if you want to know more about hip hop culture and the connection to check out KRS One. So KRS One basically broke down and explained the fact that you know going into the lineage of hip hop at the time in New York. You basically it was basically used to unify and bring together uh, gang members and people of the streets in terms of expression and in terms of, of preventing them from killing each other. In terms of making sure that the the uh, street element was able to find alternative ways of connecting with one another without being uh, vicious and destruct and self-destructive. So it stopped the cycle of self-destruction. And it was used to bring us back together, which is why they go into the aspect of the, the role the DJ, the DJ played, you know, people like uh, DJ Cool, uh, cool Herc uh, at the time. The thing about this, though, skip, skipping forward, the thing about this is once they wanted to commercialize hip-hop, what they did was they, they, they stripped it of its essence for radio play of what, what it was really about and what it was doing for the people. And in doing so, they opened the floodgates of what we refer to now as the negative type of hip-hop that was promoted and, and produced. And then what they did is they re-interjected sensuality and sexuality into it and made sure that that connection is the predominant message that is push, pushed in the, in, in the culture. And tying this back into what we're getting at now, the whole point is ways of maintaining the Negro ways of maintaining a lesser being in terms of its natural course of progression or development or strength. And so leaving on that one point, the idea of the industry and the idea of creating a Negro is you want to always have something in place because now we're kind of like moving into the evolution of the Negro. You always want to have something in place that goes into how you calibrate this Negro and maintain that Negro in it, in its place and in its position. And hip hop, like any other music, I would just say any other music from the core, from the elite status, you want to make sure you keep people where you want to keep people, keep people in terms of population control. So social engineering had its way into hip hop, just like with anything else. So we have to recognize that we are at war with a system and it's a systemic system of racism. So like any other music form, any other quote-unquote art form or science, hip-hop was interjected and, and, and taken over, and the message, the data stream that applies to that beat, that natural rhythm that black people have, and the connection with the drum was hijacked for the sake of keeping people asleep. 
because you have to be able to separate the, the, the concept of capitalism from the concept of actually having a master plan because capitalism is just a vehicle by which we're going to make sure there's an economic venture to take place. So that is the carrier wave. You can just take the raw music itself and find ways to capitalize on it and make money. But the intent was to make sure that there was not a message stream within that carrier that actually awakened the people to a higher consciousness. So you do so by, again, injecting the image, the information, the knowledge of sleeping the the mass population. So it is an active move to make sure that we stay asleep, sure that we maintain a, a point of being a Negro. That's what you have to recognize. You have to see and pierce through the curtain and recognize that it is intentionally, just simply because they capitalize off the hip-hop industry is not the key. The key is you want to make sure certain types of information is what is pumped out there to overtake the ability for pro, uh, uh, progressive information, progressive knowledge to have a front, a front street or a, a front seat, so to speak. In order to, in order to do that, you pump out and you make sure that the negative is highlighted. And that's in essence is what's going on in that. And as it applies to music industry, like motion picture film and anything else, the idea from that standpoint is how you keep the people asleep and how you keep the Negro alive, because that's the whole point is to keep the Negro alive. And from that standpoint, I turn it back over to you to to go further into the evolution of of the Negro. Okay, so to just kind of wrap up the the establishment, the creation, every aspect, and somebody asked me recently what is the the, the first step or what is the second step uh, of, of, of our movement, of the struggle, of doing something in our community. And this is the first step. The first step is to identify what happened to us and why, what it was that was done as a beginning, as an initialization of the process so that we can see now how it's continuing on. So we can look back and see how they took our drums and our dance and our singing and removed it from our control so that we were no longer communicating ideas and morals and values and conversations between one another, even on a spiritual level, to the point that it became something that we were only able to allow to use to benefit them, their entertainment, their goals, whatever it is they were trying to do, so that we can see that or we continue to burn our hair and to, and to, 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 to destroy our hair because what happened to us initially and as a part of this process was to destroy our connection to our hair, destroy our understanding of what our hair did for us between one another and our surroundings and nature as a whole so that we can see that there's a hypersexualization, not just of women, not just of sisters, and especially in the music industry, but also of brothers, and that that began not in Africa. We didn't do that. That's not our thing, but that that hypersexualization that we see of sisters in, in videos and in movies and whatnot is something that, 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 that began with our, our journey in this country when sisters were made the, the cum cushions of, of the white boys on the slave ship and the destruction of our family units by uh, them impregnating so that 
The sisters were forced to make a decision between carrying the child that she naturally loved, but at the same time naturally hated because of how that child got there. So that we can begin to identify that things are negative and they're still negative. This is why they're negative, and we can, can begin to see that connection. And if we think one is wrong, we will naturally begin to see the other is wrong and want to do something about it, even if it's just on a personal level, to affect that relationship so that we can stop being unknowing uh, participants in the creation of the next generation of Negroes. You know, these were the seasonings, uh, the seasoning of slaves. These were the, the Breaker Islands, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, or Cuba. Any of these islands was the first stop in the Americas for the Africans that were brought here to break down our ability to communicate with the world, our ability to communicate with one another, our, our ability to understand that, that our concept of ourselves as human beings was intricately and intimately tied to our ability to communicate with one another and nature. That's just the African way. I mean, the reality of it is most of the black folks I know, especially sisters, prefer to be walking when they're at home alone, prefer to walk around butt naked, not because there's something wrong with us, but because we are natural people. And being connected to, to, to nature in that way is something that is just a part of us. And when we begin to see that and connect that and make those connections, we can make a conscious decision not to propagate, not to continue the cycle and the process by contributing and giving in, even on a minor level. If nobody ever knows that you're doing this particular negative thing, still in your own mind, contributing to it because you're still holding on to it. So making that connection even on a small, unknown way that no one ever knows about is a step in the process, is a step in the undoing, is a step in moving away from the evolution, the evolution of the Negro. We have to understand this cat named Neely Fuller said that if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, everything else that you understand will only serve to confuse you. And black folks are the most confused people on the face of the planet. We think and we believe that somebody calling you nigger is racism or white supremacy when it's not. We think and we believe that Brother Floyd with a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds is racism and white supremacy supremacy, but it's not. These are expressions of the idea that Europeans are supreme and that, that, that everything else falls below them. And the system we live under is based on that idea. If I think that you're less than me and I'm in charge of coming up with a system, then automatically, naturally, the system that I come up with is going to reflect the idea that, that, that you are less than me. It's going to operate from the position that if I'm better, the system should be geared towards making sure that I stay in a better situation, that I stay in a, a better position at the detriment of everybody else. Everybody else should support me because I am supreme. And so we have to get to a point in understanding the creation and how it still exists and applies in all its manifestations is a step in that direction, standing racism and white supremacy, understanding Willie Lynch, whether it was a real person or not. A lot of people will try to get into that argument. If anybody ever tries to take you down that road, it's irrelevant. Don't care if he didn't exist or if he existed and his name was Donald. It doesn't matter. The reality of it is it's been codified and laid out for us to see exactly how they broke us down and continued 
to develop the the uh, the, uh, the the mindset of the Negro by dividing and conquer, which is essentially what Willie Lynch did. You have any problems with your man, sister? You have any problems with your woman, brother? Look to Willie Lynch. It was intentional to keep black men and women apart because the more they kept us keep us apart, we can't procreate physically, mentally, spiritually, or any type of way. So sisters back in so-called slave days would see brothers standing up to white the master like a man should. That's what we do. You mess with our family, we step in to deal with that. That's what a man does. Not a nigga, not your baby daddy. That's what a man does. When a sister back in the slave days, so-called slave days, would see this, she would automatically look at her little boy child and think, as this man steps to this white man, as this black man, this African who's stepping up to protect us, steps to, tries to step to this white man and put him in check like he's supposed to, he's cut down. He's torn apart. He's lynched. So naturally, the sister is going to want to step in and protect her child. So unwittingly, the sister will protect her child and consciously or subconsciously teach him to suppress that natural buck instinct, that natural, oh, no, you're not going, you're not going to do that. You're not going to get away with that. I'm going to check you. We're going to come to blows behind this. She wants him to cover those things up, push that stuff down so that he doesn't come to the same fate as his father or some other brother that stood up to the oppressor at the time. Aside from Willie Lynch, things like the Black Codes and, and, and Jim Crow laws that were set in place after, after the so-called Emancipation Proclamation and all of that to keep niggas in check. These were laws that you know, the, uh, divided us, uh, first the Black Codes and later, later, uh, Jim Crow, uh, you know, drinking at white-only uh, uh, water fountains and uh, black-only restaurants and all of that type of thing. But I wanted to key in on one thing very, very much is the prison industrial con- complex. You may have heard that term thrown around. We see a lot of brothers going to prison. And, yeah, Bill Clinton and your boy, if you want to vote for him, vote for him if you want to. But understand, you're playing a fool that Joe Biden helped to pass the whole street three strikes law that the prison population uh, uh, doubled or tripled during the Clinton administration when Joe was a senator because of the laws that they created. Several hundred thousand more police were put on the street. More and more laws. He still brags about there being uh, another 60, 70, 80 laws that were put on the book that would cause somebody to be put on death row. This is something he brags about. The prisons are over, overflowing with our people, especially brothers, sisters too, but especially brothers. There was a thing right after Reconstruction called peonage. And see if this sounds familiar. If you were caught, though you were free, supposedly, this is after the Civil War and all of that, you're a black man and you're walking down the street and you can't show proof that you're walking to your job, you could be arrested for walking down the street. Once you were arrested and placed into the penal system, you were then uh, farmed out. Basically, you were rented to a white business owner who needed some help, a white farmer that needed some help to work off your debt, a debt 
that they would keep throwing fines on and making a bigger fine and a bigger fine so that you never got out of the loop, that you were constantly kept there. Why? Because it didn't serve their purpose to have you work off your debt. They needed you to stay in debt so that they could continue to make money off of you. Just as the private prisons in this country right now, think about it. If my business is, if, if I make money off of housing prisoners, why in the hell would I want there to be fewer prisoners? If I'm getting more money for more prisoners, I want more prisoners. So, of course, I'm going to work to, 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 to get it so that there are more laws that create more criminals, because that's what creates criminals. It ain't economics. It ain't us doing the wrong thing. It's people passing laws. Most of us break five or ten laws every day, and we don't even realize it because there are so many laws on the book that you can get a ticket, and anything you can get a ticket for, you can be arrested for. And in this day and age, you can be detained, detained and arrested for absolutely nothing without a word. And definitely, your boy Obama, I believe, was the one that passed uh, the, the, the legislation saying that it was okay for indefinite uh, uh, detention. Basically, you can be picked up, put into a prison cell, until whenever. So this is the maintaining, the, 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 the evolution of, of our Negro situation, of the Negro. And I know a lot of times folks, especially black folks, will say, well, things have gotten better. And they'll, they'll almost invariably note that we've had a black president and we've got black senators and blah, blah, blah. But let's reflect on that time right after the Civil War called Reconstruction, the time when it was opened up and essentially black folks were told, okay, y'all can run for office, y'all can vote, all of that, blah, blah, blah. There was a cat named Hiram Revels and Bruce K. Blanche. These were the two, first two black men to become U.S. senators. Cool. But then there's a story of the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina. Basically, long story short, because there's a lot into it, but you had a city in North Carolina where, where uh, black folks owned 10 of the, 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 the 11 restaurants in the city. Black folks own 10 out of 11. Ninety percent of the, 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 the barbers in the city were black. One of the city's four uh, fish and oyster uh, dealerships were black. There were more black bookmakers and shoemakers than white. A third of the city's butchers were black. Half of the city's tailors were black. And there were two brothers, actual you know, brothers and brothers, who owned a, 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 a daily newspaper, which was the only black-owned daily newspaper in the country. What happened, you say? White folks got irritated. No lie, no exaggeration. This one cat, there had been uh, accusations by some of the, the white folks who were running for office that said, was saying, again, see if it sounds familiar, that black folks, black men were a threat to the black women evidence of which there's a whole lot of uh, uh, black, and, uh, black men and black women, uh, well, white women, having children. And that basically it was black men pushing themselves off on white girls. Well, this one newspaper guy, brother said, this brother wrote an article basically saying, well, the reality of it is your little white girls that are quote-unquote getting savaged by these black men, they actually like these black men. They're going after the brothers. Sounds familiar to me. But these white folks got pissed because this brother wrote this, burned down the printing press, told him to get out of town, 
before the end of the day or he was dead, they rounded up about a thousand of their, their, their white partners, locked and loaded, rifles, weapons, and everything. There had just been a, 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 an election, and the city's uh, 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 mayors and city council and, and all of those elected officials were mixed. They were black and white. It was mostly black with a few whites sprinkled in there. These white boys with their guns went down literally to the city hall and said, look, y'all get the hell out. Y'all are no longer, even though you've been elected, democratically elected, democratically elected in a country that says it prides itself on being a democracy, you were democratically elected, but we don't like it. So get out of town or we're going we gonna to shut it down. And one by one, as these black and white elected and resigned, these white boys installed one of their uh, chosen candidates into those offices. So this was a coup in the United States of America, democracy that it claims it is, which it ain't. These white folks said we're tired of black folks having to say so, came down there with their, their weaponry and said, get out. It's over. No more black days and all of that. So you think, you think that kind of thing doesn't happen, won't happen, can't happen in this country. It has happened. So we need to stop being complacent and thinking because we got some black faces and some high up spaces that somehow things are different. When white folks decide they want this country back, they've shown historically, I don't care how you feel. I'm not leaving my liberation up to your emotional state. The facts are the facts. When they get tired of playing to your emotions and your bitching and whining, they will come back and take their country, period. Those are facts. So, Psych, I don't know if you want to build on anything. Didn't mean to go quite so long, but you know how it is. So I'm gonna <laughs> give it to you. I'm gonna give it to you and War, and, and, and let y'all y'all roll with it. And just try to. And, and again, I apologize for going so long, but um, hopefully we'll be able to get some folks in. So leave a few minutes somewhere toward the end. But y'all y'all got the rest of the show. I'll be quiet. <laughs> Well, we know you like to talk, so that's probably not going to happen. (laughs) But but I want to add on to some of what you were saying, especially when you talked about laws, you talked about Clinton, and you talked about the prison industrial complex. That's an important and a sore spot for me, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, when, uh, when, uh, when Nixon was president, Old tricky, old tricky Nixon was president, and his uh, memoirs. He said that our biggest problem in this country is the Negro problem. He said, but the only way to solve that problem is to solve the problem, but act like you're solving some other problem. That's what he said. He said you can't acknowledge that you're trying to solve the Negro problem because that's going to create a problem. You have to solve that Negro problem, but act like you're solving something else. Uh, a good book to read to get this information, to get a detailed understanding of the things that I'm going to break down right now is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Uh, uh, a very good book to read. I read a few other books that talked about the same subject, uh, a book on the mafia. It's called The Five Families. Ironically, they get into a lot of law and how a lot of uh, – uh, Drugs was declared illegal. But anyway, it gets back to the point. So then what you see preceding that statement in American history and culture, what you will end up seeing is 
president after president coming up with slick ways of solving the Negro problem, but claiming that they're solving another problem. In the time of Ronald Reagan, he declared his war on drugs. And Nancy Reagan, his wife, her pet project was the whole just say no thing. The egg cracking in the damn skillet and all of that, that, that was his theme. That was, that, that was the theme that they purported. Now, this war on drugs, this so-called war on drugs, mobilized the quote-unquote police enforcement uh, agencies and the military overseas to start taking out people of color, period, point blank, Latin people overseas and black people right here. Uh, 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 we call them law enforcement, but U.P. Newton said that the law enforcement is nothing more than the smoking gun in the hand of the oppressor. So what, what you end up having was the, uh, the rates at which black people was incarcerated for drugs went sky high. Now, keep this in mind. Now, here's the funny thing, and I remember talking with a white guy about this years ago. Me and this white guy, we were sitting down and we were having a conversation, and I told him, I said, Do you, are, you aware, are you aware that there are roughly 300 million people in the country? Black people only make up 40 million of 300 million in the country. White people are the, are the majority at the time. White people are the majority, and white people make up like 100 and some million, 150 million people in the country. But black people are charged with, I mean, black people are convicted of and sentenced of drug charges high, at a higher rate than, than white people. And he said, well, maybe it's because they're catching more charges, more cases. I said, I knew you were going to say that while I left this part out. And then I pulled out the almanac and showed them. But white people are charged with drug crimes at a higher rate. White people are charged with drug crimes at a higher rate, but they are not convicted and sentenced to prison at a higher rate than black people. So this is what Ronald Reagan brought to the game. And then later, when you talk about Bill Clinton, so many people say Bill Clinton was the first black president. Bill Clinton signed into effect what was called, the, uh, uh, essentially what was called the Telephone Violent Crimes Law. And with the passage of that law, what he had attached to that law is what made the, the uh, what skyrocketed the prison uh, uh, population in this country. This country has one of the highest prison populations on the planet Earth, and it was based on, on the law that Bill Clinton uh, signed to effect. And just like Brother E just explained, that when you have more prison beds, you've got to fill people in them. You know, when, when people are making money from this, there's no way you're going to shut down prison or try to lower the prison population. So what ended up happening with this telephone violent crimes law is what was attached to the law that any state that applied many of the principles that accompanied this law was able to get a certain amount of money. Think about it like you, you, uh, you're a child in your parents' household, and they say, well, if you do this to your bedroom, we'll up your allowance. So states start scrambling. That's with the three strikes you outlaws, the mandatory minimums, all that. Texas created the uh, you got to bring 50% on aggravated crime laws, and that's, what, that's what's on the books. But in Texas, you actually bring in like 80-some percent of your time. The feds, you got to bring 85%. I'm talking about they build more prisons. The, the building of prisons skyrocketed all over the country because the federal government gave the funds to states to build more prisons. And in the building of prisons, they also stated that they was creating more jobs because if you build more prisons, you got to have more prison officers, and you got to have more mail room clerks, and you got to have more nurses and doctors and dentists in the prisons taking care of the inmates. So this became a big business. 
this is what took place in the in the, in the with, with prison. And then in Texas, and I can talk about Texas. And then here's the thing. So here it is. You got the, the carrot dangled out in front of you on parole, making parole one day. Hopefully, that carrot is put in your face. And and if you got an aggravated crime, you ain't gonna see the possibility of parole until you've been down fifty percent of that time. And you get this time sheet, and this time sheet is showing that you have been accredited good time for being good in prison, doing the things you're supposed to do. It's showing that you've been accredited uh, work time for working for free. But since they can't make you work for free, supposedly, what they're doing is giving you time credited towards your sentence. But here's the thing. None of this time counts. It's on paper if anybody ever want to look it up. It's in the computer. It shows that they have given it to you, but they haven't applied it toward releasing you from prison because Texas is a, what's called a discretionary parole state, meaning that the people that sit on the board to make the decision on whether or not you're going to make parole have the discretion to say, ah, I ain't going to give it to them, and they don't have to give no, no reason for this. Now, now, now I'm going to add one more thing to this that, that, that struck me as shocking when I did the studies on this. The people on the parole board that make these decisions have to have at least two years' experience in law enforcement. That means that to be a parole officer, to be on the parole board, to be a person who makes the decision on whether or not you get out of prison, have to either have been an a ex-police officer, a judge, a lawyer, or a prison guard. The very people that sent you to prison and kept you in prison are the same people that make a decision on whether or not you get out of it. So this is this is is kind of what you're dealing with when you're dealing with the prison industrial complex, and this is nothing uh, uh, the crazy guy psych has made up in his mind. This is all real law. This is actually how this stuff is being applied and 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 uh, uh, how it's being instituted in our society. That person don't know about it because most people don't care about it unless it's happening to them. But this is what we're dealing with when it comes to law. And yes, Bill Clinton created this this this. this and, and according to uh, Michelle Alexander in the new Jim Crow, she says, basically, essentially, and a few other books I read said this, if you remember in the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of movies, gangster movies, were real popular. Movies like Scarface and Goodfellas and Casino and all these gangster movies, Minister Society, Boys in the Hood, all this stuff came out. And these were great. We love these movies. These were great movies. Well, what, what essentially what happened was, it terrified the average middle class and high-wage-earning white population because in their mind, the average nigger was old dog, and he was running around killing people, doing drive-bys and murdering people. And they had been, they had, during the time of Ronald Reagan and, and that whole just say no thing, they had to, uh, they created the idea of a low-life drug dealer standing outside the school campuses giving crack to, to, to elementary kids. So they were like, oh, my God, no. So they are the, they are the ones who helped promote and pass that law, that, that tough on violent crimes law, because they thought that the, that the, that the uh, country was being overran by violent crimes. If you watch the movie RoboCop, the first RoboCop, you'll see the idea that had been planted in the average uh, 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 middle-class person's mind state. And I remember one time when I was in prison, uh, uh, a prison guard, a female, she told me, she said, you're a drug dealer. You sold drugs to kids. And I told her, I said, listen to yourself. Listen to how you think. 
Don't no drug dealer sell drugs to kids. Kids don't have a paycheck. Drug dealers sell drugs to you. Don't nobody give drugs to no darn kids outside of the school. How they gonna make money? A drug dealer can't drive Cadillacs and, and Benzes uh, uh, with their customer base being kids. And if they're waiting for the kids to grow up, they'll go out of business waiting 10 to 15 years for somebody to grow up and start making money. That's insane. Nobody is using logic. These after-school specials got us believing that a drug dealer is giving free dope to kids, and that's how he's staying in business. That's insane. It doesn't even make sense. But, but I just wanted to uh, kind of piggyback on what Brother E talked about, about the uh, uh, prison industrial complex and those, and those ideas. I said earlier, I talked about the song by the sister Neelam. Uh, the name of the song is uh, Secret Meeting, where she talked about the, the music industry. That's the name of the song. And I talked about the, uh, the uh, five distribution companies. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember them. There was five. There are only four now. Sony and BMG merged, but the five was EMI, Sony, Universal, BMG, and Warner. And Sony and BMG merged, so it's only four. And there will only be four. And I said there will never be a six. But as you can see, that they'll go down, but they'll never go up. But that's all I had to say. And I know I probably got long-winded like Brother E for a minute. He inspired, <laughs> he inspired somebody of me, so I got long-winded a little bit like Brother E. So I'm going to pass the mic to Brother Wall. All right. What I want to go over real quick, though, is I want to I want to go back into, since we're talking about the evolution, I want to go back into the concept or the types of, of, uh, of Negroes. And the reason why I want to go into this, because what I think is important is that we recognize that we are dealing with the the the, in the social engineering of a a people for the sake of production, for the sake of of, of a benefit of a, of a certain class. So, in order to do so, they had to dehumanize. So, in going into that, one aspect I want to talk about going into, I want to deal with a, a definition first: channeling channeled enslavement conditioning. That's channeled enslavement conditioning a course or direction in which dehumanizing may be directed, a process of changing behavior by rewarding or punishing a subject each time an action is performed. The subject associates the action with pleasure or distress. This action is best described as domestication, the breaking or removal of willpower, the erasing of abilities, and the extraction of direct readiness. Now, it's important that we get that because it is three parts to that. It is the breaking of the or removal of the willpower, the erasing of the abilities, and the extraction of direct readiness. So that's dealing with the will, the willing, ability, and, and, and able. So when we talk about being willing, ready, and able, as Panthers, we go into that. You have to be all three, willing, ready, and able. Not just willing. It's willing, ready, and able. And the point here is the conditioning, the process itself of conditioning, which is creating that Negro and maintaining that Negro, you have to address all three. And when it, as it applies to warfare, it's important that we recognize that. So dealing with some of the types of the Negro. We are all familiar with um, 
the classifications as it as as it goes to the field and the house Negro. That that's what most people are aware of. But there's a greater framework in in reference to looking at how the Negro was operated in a farm environment. So there is an ecosystem built around forms. In other words, you have certain types of animals that have certain types of responsibilities so that the form can operate efficiently, so that the land is utilized in an efficient manner so that you can, you know, produce more yield and, and, and take advantage of your crops according to the seasons and so forth. As it applies to the Negro, the same thing went into play. And un, uh, oftentimes we, we tend to forget that when you deal with the conditioning of something, there is a master plan, there is a thought-out mapping of how this is done. And when it goes into the evolution of the Negro, that same thing went into, in, into place. And the fact that as, as a collective we don't recognize all that goes into conditioning is part of the problem as to why we have difficulty with the extermination of the Negro, because we have to know what we're dealing with. So we have to we have to be able to really see our enemy. And in addressing that, you have the buck, right? And the buck, pretty much everyone refers to the buck as being that uh, 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 real strong strong body or muscular male that could do a lot of the field work. Then you had the, uh, and it also would go into the field hand, right? And then you had the house, which make up of cooks, servants, and advisors. Now, that's another thing. A lot of times when you talk about the house Negro, people don't, people don't really break down the different aspects of the house Negro, which cooks, servants, and advisors, a.k.a. field monitors, or just plain old snitch. And that's what the advisor roles play. And mind you, this would, this would generally be the Negro that would keep a, an eye on what the field Negroes are doing, as well as the, uh, the, as well as the overseer out in the field. But this person had more of a wider view of what's actually taking place. And not only that, they would do the same thing within the house. So this is, and this was usually your, old, your older slaves because they, they didn't have much physical um, capabilities anymore. But again, dealing with the weaponization of, of anything, as we get older as a people or as an individual, let me say, the older you get, typically rec- recognizing that you don't have the strength you had when you was younger, now you sit back and you analyze. The older we get, the more we get into analysis, the more we get into really thinking about things from, from the front to the back. And so, therefore, the older slave had a better um, grace on looking at things and looking into plots and looking into plans and looking into how uh, certain types of behaviors were taking place in the field and in the house and be able to to decode uh, certain messages and recognize when slaves were about to either try to create rebellions or just do anything to get over. And so the monitors would, would, would take care of that. So that was a specific role, again, to create a – ecosystem to keep the Negro alive, all right? And then what you also had is you had your mammies, and then you had your plaything. Well, let's go back to mammy first. And mammy was typically uh, a female, a female uh, slave that would basically raise the, children, the, the white children, uh, and they are the ones that actually took care of the children while 
the mother basically oversaw the cooks and the servants. And then you had the plaything. And oftentimes we forget about the plaything. The plaything was the, the children that they felt would be good as house niggas, as basically pets for the the white children. So they referred to them as the plaything. So they would sit down and they would they would treat them like one of their dolls, pull you know pull them around and then in, in practice they basically practice domination. So when as they get older and become you know in their teenage and adult years, they would naturally have a tendency to be able to put themselves in a a um, superior position, as well as the playthings themselves would put themselves in an inferior position because they are being raised, you know, from child to child as an inferior person. So, see, these kind of acts and these kind of operations instilled within our people an inferior concept. So we have to look at the totality of everything that was going on because there was a specific role that helped the conditioning and the health, the calibration of the Negro to stay in place. And it's, it's so important that we recognize those. The Mandingo, not as a tribe, but as a type of, as a type of uh, uh, mentality on the slave, on, on the on the uh, in, on the plantation, which served as a breeder, a fighter. And one of the things that people don't 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 like to think about from a historical standpoint was also a sex toy, and not only by used by the madam or the or the or the white um, woman on on this slave, but there are tales and there are stories about how these slave owners. Yeah, we're talking about some of the the homosexuality acts that took place against the Mandingo. Now these served multiple purposes. And so we have to get into that because you don't hear too many people talk about that. One of the aspects from homosexuality that is applies to the Mandingo was when you commit those type of acts against that strong postured male, it will prevent him and it will psychologically break him down to the point to where around other slaves, he was not mentally or are viewed upon as being strong because he had minimum ways. See, the thing about that is the Mandigo will be a great fighter with minimum ways because he's embracing and engaging into combat with another male. So looking at all that sweat, looking at all that muscle, being able to just grab each other, that created a certain stimulation and certain drive to where it would actually make a better fight between two Males that exhibit homosexuality behavior. See, a lot of times we don't get that. Very few books talk about it, so we don't know that. So, but it also caused a dehumanizing effect that will further instill the Negro image on the plantation. And it would also help to reinforce the fact that here you go with this strong African male that could at any time outpower the Europeans on the plantation, but because he was mentally defeated through homosexual acts, because of him being mentally defeated through homosexual acts, he would not see himself as able to fight the white man. He could fight another black man or or refer to as another Negro, 
because it ain't another Negro that's having homosexual acts with him. It's only that slave master. And so from that standpoint, it put the white male in a completely different classification as superiority, whereas he viewed other strong black males as targets. And so it created a natural tendency for them to hate each other and a competition that would ensue to where I'm going to defeat you, to make Massa proud. Not only defeat you, but I will kill you. So those are some of the conditions that took place that a lot of times people don't grasp. And, all again, all of this is for the position of being able to continue the idea of conditioning and creating enslavement. So going back to what we talked about, it was the breaking or removal of the willpower, the erasing of the abilities, and the extraction of direct readiness. The last one that we want to talk about, well, a couple of more we want to, we want to identify as the master's bitch. What was the master's bitch? The master's bitch was this one um, slave or several slaves to the master to a point to where he wanted to keep them to, them, to himself. And we know how that story goes. And then you had the fiddler. Going back to what we talked about within the music industry, this was the slave that would basically create a, you know, a, a musical entertainment for the plantation. Because keep in mind, we're talking about back in the day where there was no radios, okay? There was no, there was, you didn't have radios, you didn't have record players, you didn't have anything. All you had was live instrumentation music. That's what music was, live instrumentation. So in order to keep that going, you had a, a slave that would be playing music and keeping everybody, especially within the house, uh, of the uh, the house family or the house environment, keep them going. Just like the field, the field Negro had uh, what they refer to as spirituals or songs that they or chants that they would uh, sing to each other to keep their work going. Within the house, you had some of the same thing, but you would you could not be singing that type of stuff, and the the, the white folks in the house be okay with that. No, they wasn't having that. So you had the fiddler. You had the person playing the house music so that everyone could conduct and do their work. And then you had the field preacher. The field preacher was the person that basically utilized, was taught to utilize, create the condition of inferiority within the, the uh, plantation and basically emphasize the fact that this is God's way. So their job was to maintain a condition of sleep across the plantation. And then you had the tracker. The tracker was this this uh was a type of Negro that could do several things. Number one, they they knew how to recognize and operate within terrain and help identify, you know, uh runaway slaves. They could help with, with uh with um hunting, fishing. They just basically knew how to operate the land. They knew how to navigate throughout the land. So you had your tracker. And then you had your engineer boy. And they referred to him as a boy. The engineer boy was this one who had a mind, obviously a gifted mind for understanding sciences. But he was never given credit for his work. But he was basically a looked upon as a helper or a tool to the uh, European counterpart, which oftentimes it was, it, it was him that created that invention. But because he was, remember this, but because he was owned, and because he was not considered a human being, 
any invention that the engineer boy or the nigger boy came up with was the byproduct of the slave owner. And thereby, obviously, by not having any rights, ever whatever was produced, created, designed, the credit and the, the, the works and the rights will go to the slave owner. This is another piece of history in terms of how certain inventions and certain things uh, and certain wealth came into the, the slaveholders' hold, families that the actually when the actual uh, idea and the conception of the, of the design that they got paid for came from one of their slaves, which is no different than nowadays when you go to work for a corporation, there is typically corporations, especially in the manufacturing industry, that deal with uh, inventions. While you're working for that company, if you produce any type of an invention that will better enhance the workload of that company, that invention automatically belongs to that company, even though you generated it. Typically, there is the disclosure paperwork that you have to sign saying that anything you invent or create that improves the production and the operation of the job that you work for belongs to that company. This is where that, that type of legislation comes from. And a lot of people don't know that. So I think it's important that I was that we had covered these different types of, of Negroes for the sake of us having a greater picture and an overview what it meant to create an operation that that had a, an efficient cycle to keep the Negro going. And now that we're down to the last four uh fifteen minutes of the show, what I want to do now is is if unless brother uh psych uh, e have any closing remarks on that dealing with the calibration? I want us to go into the extermination of the Negro because the extermination of the Negro is where, especially right now in this 2020 vision year, we're finding our people are waking up. And in finding our people waking up, we have to deal with aspects of why we're waking up now, what is leading this situation, and why it's important to know what it was to create the Negro, what it is to have an evolution or evolve or a process of conditioning the Negro so that we can know how to exterminate the Negro. Go ahead. I'll turn it over to either one of y'all. Um, really, I, I don't know that – I mean, I'm hoping – I'm not in front of the board, so I can't see – how many folks we have on. I don't know if there's anybody that wants to, to chime in and, and speak and provide some, some input from the community. Um, if there is war, please, given that opportunity, I would yield my time. I'm just like to do the same for them to be able to do that. And the only thing going into that I would say is watch Harriet, the movie by Harriet Tubman, for those different types of Negroes that you just uh, uh, enumerated. Um, it gives a caricature of pretty much each one of those. So you might want to check out Harriet just to kind of get a visual and kind of put two and two together. But is there anybody that wants to come in or fight? Let me no, say this real quick. For those, uh, let me say for those listeners, if anybody wants to talk, just press one, because currently we don't have anybody uh, that, that, that raised their, their mic to uh, come in. Go ahead, Sykes. All right, I have nothing to say. I, I'm going to let you go on and continue where you was going. I want to see 
about the destruction, the elimination of the Negro. Okay, let me let me also say this then. Going back to the the the, uh, the motion picture, e, brother E just referenced. To me, there is an even better picture that helps goes into the classification and the calibration of the Negro. That I think was the best uh, motion picture example of that. And that movie is um, now that I think about it, it's on the tip of my tongue. The uh, Goodbye Uncle Tom, because that that particular well, yeah. movie, the way. That movie there was filmed, I believe, him filmed in Haiti. And what happened within that movie is they actually yep. broke down uh, a lot of the classifications and, and showed the dehumanizing factor. That movie was, was just real gut-wrenching on dehuman, dehumanization of the African. And so a lot of people are not aware of that movie, and it's hard to find that movie in, um, in, the, uh, in, no. in print, but you can go on the it, internet and find it, it I believe. It's it's on uh actually yeah I would agree that it, it definitely gets more into the nitty gritty. Um, Harriet is just a little bit quicker moving because you know our our attention spans uh, are not quite what they were so maybe as an entryway but definitely um, goodbye Uncle Tom and it is available on um, YouTube. Um, okay. I just ripped it. I'm going to say that too many times but yeah it's still avail it's, it's available on on YouTube um, to, to to watch. But okay. it, it just seeing or thinking about any of those aspects, there was one somewhere in the middle. I forget the, the name of it that, that, that you provided, but what popped into my head was, and I know you, you'll be able to pick up which one I'm talking about from the description, when you have these uh, black cops that um, at one point were, you know, street thugs, they were running the street with, the, with, you know, with the G's and the, maybe they sold a little here or whatever, but they were streetwise and whatnot, and they, quote-unquote, got their lives together and cleaned up and whatnot and became cops. And because they are able to interpret the, 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 the language of the streets and how people move and all of that, that makes them, an, and makes them an invaluable tool to the oppressor, to the cops, to be able to alert them to what's going on and also to help to put down any uprisings because – they, they'll know how to gain the respect of the cats in the street, carry themselves so that they'll be looked at a certain way. So that, like I said, there was, there was one of those that, that you described and that's what popped into my head was, was, you know, these, 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 these cops that, you know, these iced tea cops that be in, in, right. in the streets and whatnot. Right. Right. Like the movie, the movie Harry had two different types of trackers in that movie. And one of them ended up, ended up aiding Harriet in, uh, in her adventures and the other one, Ended up getting shot or trying to kill yeah. or, or or destroy some property, so to speak, which was Harriet. So yes, yeah. Um, so going into E, can you uh, break down or, or help us lead into within the last eight minutes here of uh, the extermination? What 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 does it take <laughs> to, to deal with the extermination of the character? So we know that. That process, you know, that we are in the process of understanding and unfolding and and trying to convey to the masses of the people is, and it seems real cut and dry just in the idea of reversing what's been done, taking steps backwards, looking at where it started and starting and, and on a personal level, turning a corner and 
and and and and choosing to go against that grain, you know, um, understanding for us the 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 isms and beginning to apply those um, in our everyday thought processes. Um, I was watching. Um, I was watching. Matter of fact, it was I was watching Harriet, and uh, the example of say Black liberation theology. You know, if we make the decision that instead of in our religious dealings in the church, instead of looking at Moses as being this man who lived whatever thousands of years ago on the other side of the planet, speaking to someone else's uh, uh, oppression and leading them out of, of 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 their slavery. Why can't Moses for us be a little black woman in the South, leading us out of our oppression, leading us out of our slavery? In fact, she was called Moses because of what she was doing. And so, adopting these ideas and being comfortable with and understanding how they apply and how they affect our interactions with ourselves and with our community is paramount. Gaining that, that understanding, learning to be critical thinkers, learning to, even before that, to identify what we feel and what we think and being comfortable with the fact that what we think may make us feel bad but it's still the logical, rational thinking that we have to apply and to control those emotions so that we can implement these, these, these processes and these ideas, these ideologies, and, and continue to uh, uh, delve into what it is that on a subconscious level, controlling even those of us who say that we're in leadership positions, Acknowledging that we're still slaves, embracing that and accepting that, because until you accept, you know, I've I've realized in the fact in the past not too too long, this idea of hope and how it is an addiction that we have to hope. This this idea of well, it's going to be great. I hope for a better day, and I hope and I hope and I hope. And how that keeps us complacent and 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 okay with our oppression because we just keep hoping. When in reality we set that hope aside and start dealing with the reality that we have at hand, we take off the rose-colored glasses and start to see the world for what it is and accept the world for what it is and the way it is, even if we feel a certain way knowing that our thoughts are telling us this is how it is. This is the fact of the matter. So the first step for me is on an individual level and is allowing ourselves to feel our anger and our depression and our pissed offedness and all of those things while we continue to or begin to invest in the thought process so that we can make better decisions. You know, the things that are going on in the streets, great. But 
those things keep happening every whatever number of years, every 20 years, every 10 or 15, whatever years it is that we jump up and everybody in mass starts to protest, that those things fizzle off and fade away because they're all emotion, because they're not thought out, because there's nothing behind it to catch it when that emotion wires up and pops off to go out and say, okay, we got you. Seize the day. You're pissed off. Let's go. Let's go start a business. Let's go start a school for these kids. Let's go start a garden. Those are thoughts. Those are ideas. Those are plans as opposed to the emotion of running out into the street and getting wired up for a few weeks just to have it go back to sleep, just to have it fizzle out. So those are those are my ideas as far as the extinction of, the getting rid of, the destroying and the killing and cold-blooded murder of the Negro within oneself is having that revolution, that change. And that's all revolution is, is change, change. So I don't know if that speaks to what you were asking me, but that's what I was told to say. <laughs> all right. Psych, you got anything two minutes in? Well, I don't think uh, I could give a, the answer to that in two minutes. But <laughs> I can, <laughs> but I can say this: I can say that I've, I've always believed that positive education always corrects errors. I always believed that, and that uh, positive education always creates elevation. Because my elevation, my own awakening, occurred with education, with being. Uh, uh, tell the true history of people's under, uh, people's history and a true conscious understanding of myself, my surroundings, and the culture that I came from. So I think that that is an important component. But uh, uh, as one of the things Hugh P. Newton said years ago, he said that that uh, that the guard, that the job of the Vanguard Party was not to create revolution. He said that the job of the Vanguard Party was to raise the people's consciousness. That the people create revolution. The vanguard does not create revolution. The vanguard can't do it. And that the vanguard's job was only to raise consciousness. And that every activity that the vanguard party participated in was for the raising of consciousness. And that's what made the revolutionary. He said that that the act could be a, a bold, a very bold statement. It could be the right thing to do. But if it did not raise the people's consciousness, it was not revolutionary. So my understanding and my ideal is that the, uh, the consciousness has to be raised. And it's a process. It's a, it's a actual step-by-step process that must be taken in order to destroy the nigger mindset, the Negro, in order to destroy that and move black people back to being black and prior to that once again. It's a process. It's something that will take time. One of the things that we have to keep in mind is that 30 seconds. we talked about every everything that happened, but we never talked about the fact that nothing was done after we were so-called free from slavery to reverse that. Got it. And what I want to say in the, in the closing 20 seconds is, is uh, basically, and this is for our listening audience to, to do more research on, we don't do any new shows, but we are basically returning back to what's referred to by the, the conscious Africans as a non-ether state. The nine, number nine, the ether, non-ether state. That is where we're headed back. So with that being said, people, all power to the people. Uh, Tune in. 
Continue building with us. Black power. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.